walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 48. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. I'm recording this introduction in early January 2021. It's the beginning of a double holy year in Santiago, as the Pope has just confirmed that 2022 will enjoy the distinction as well. May we all find our way back there at some point over these next 24 months. Since I last spoke with you, I've been pretty busy. I actually wrote a new book about pilgrimage. I'm excited about it. I'm proud of it. It is definitely not a guidebook. I've had the idea of writing about pilgrimage for a long time, of course. It makes sense. But I've struggled to identify something new that I could add to the discussion. I'm not, I confess, particularly motivated by the idea of putting my own pilgrimage memoir out there. I'm grateful for others who do. It's just I don't see it from myself. But in late May, an idea popped into my mind, an angle that I thought was pretty different from anything else out there. So I powered through an intensive month of research in June, heavily supported by two of my former student pilgrims, Katie and Lauren, then wrote a draft in July and early August. School took over at that point as I had to figure out how to teach online, something I have now done exclusively for months. We continue to be online only in Portland, Oregon for the foreseeable future. Gradually, though, cleared out some space to apply feedback, uh, tighten up a couple of chapters, and finally got the second draft to a place I was happy with. Now comes the hard part, trying to navigate the world of publication, but it's been a fantastic experience and a very healthy distraction so far, and I look forward to telling you more about it at some point. But with that done, back to the podcast. I've already got a handful of episodes completed, and I'd love to get at least 10 new episodes produced in this new sequence, so we'll see how things go. A lot depends on what I hear back from some people I've reached out to. You'll notice a shift in some of these new episodes as I try to further broaden my scope and look into pilgrimage from a wider array of perspectives. I hope this will be of interest to you. It's where my interests increasingly reside. I'm also cognizant of what great and prolific work Dan and Bradley are doing with their podcasts, My Camino and El Camino de Santiago Pilgrims podcast. And there's no point in duplicating their efforts along with the efforts of others. It's a, it's a booming field out here, podcasts about the Camino these days. Frankly, I can't keep up with them. But I think there's a niche that I can still look to fill and, and hopefully it'll be of interest. And having said all that, We'll keep to the pilgrimage meat and potatoes for this first episode back. While I technically completed the series of episodes devoted to the Camino Frances over this past year, the reality is that, for many contemporary pilgrims, we weren't quite done. Indeed, some 25,000 pilgrims walked from Santiago to Finisterre in 2019, while a smaller number continued on through Muxia. So in today's episode, we'll look to really bring that pilgrimage sequence to a conclusion. I'm joined for the discussion by two experienced pilgrims who bring very different perspectives to the mix. One, Terry Stephenson, has walked from Santiago to the coast multiple times. Not only that, she has walked in both directions towards the coast, 
directly to Finisterre and Muxia, and then also made the connecting walk between those two destinations in both directions. The other, Irene Lipschen, has focused her time on the coast itself, walking between Sey, Finisterre, and Muxia. Muxia has a tendency to get short shrift in these discussions. And for me, that's what makes Irene's perspective so valuable. What made me want to have her on this episode is that she has this deep affection for the town of Muxia and a great deal of experience with it. Our discussion is structured according to the near-universal staging that one finds for this pilgrimage across all major guidebooks, two stages to Overoa, a third stage from there to Finisterre or Muxia, and then a final stage linking the two. Increasingly, though, it's worth noting, pilgrims are taking four days to reach the coast, whether that initial destination be Finisterre or Muxia. While it's easy to regard contemporary practices as long-standing historical ones, the record surrounding pilgrims to the coast is much more muddled. Even the name for the coast, the Costa da Morte, or the Coast of Death, is a relatively recent production. One of its first prominent appearances in writing shows up in a local newspaper only in 1904, while Paula Ballesteros Arias notes that it wasn't fully locked in until the 1990s, utilized as a strategy to promote economic development. I found that tidbit in Heritage, Pilgrimage, and the Camino to Finisterre, a tremendously useful collection of essays edited by Cristina Sanchez Carretero. Indeed, that's a minor detail in comparison to the larger assertion that she makes, backed by two articles in the collection. Namely, she writes that the Camino to Finisterre is related to the Marian pilgrimage to Muxia, to the Virgin Mary's legendary visit, as well as the Christ of Finisterre and the Hermit of San Guillermo, rather than to St. James. And therefore, she writes, in its east-west direction is not, repeat not, an old Jacobian route. So it certainly has drawn pilgrims historically, just not as a technical Jacobian pilgrimage, not as a technical Camino de Santiago. Only in the 1990s, like the Costa da Morte, was the extension to Finisterre formally promoted as part of the Camino de Santiago. Even if this is a modern, co-opted construct, though, it's a thoroughly enjoyable modern, co-opted construct. So join the three of us, Terry, Irene, and me, as we fondly reminisce on time spent on these trails. to be joined by two experienced pilgrims for some lively recollections of the pilgrimage at Santiago de Compostela, towards Finisterre and Muxia. Harry Stephenson is a chapter coordinator for the Southern Oregon chapter of American Pilgrims on the Camino, and prolific contributor to the Camino Forum. Irene Lipschen is a photographer and the author of a wonderful pilgrimage blog, Walking Through the Ages. Welcome to you both. And before we dive in, could you each share a, a little about your pilgrimage background, generally and with the Finisterre Muxia route specifically? And Terry, could you go first? Well, I did my first Camino in 2016. I had learned about it several years earlier, and the idea of walking across a country and not having to camp out 
really appealed to me because I love to walk and I love to travel and I couldn't think of a better way of seeing another country and culture than on the ground. And so my actual goal in doing the Camino de Santiago wasn't to reach Santiago. It was to walk across a country, meaning from the French border all the way to the ocean. So if I didn't make it to Finisterre, I would have been pretty disappointed. <laughs> I get that. Yeah, the, the sense of completion, looking at the map and feeling that level of satisfaction. That's great. Thank you, Terry. Irene. I also started my first Camino in 2016. And I have to say, first of all, thank you for hosting. And I'm really excited to be here with both of you. And I'm a walker and a wanderer. And I've been traveling and adventuring most of my adult life. But discovering different Camino routes the first time in 2016 on the Frances, that, I have to say, was life-changing. And I really do look at life through a wide-angle lens. And so I remember kind of the big picture rather than all the little details. And when I arrived in 2016, I met an experienced peregrina amiga, Darlene McKee from Toronto, and we were waiting in line for the Parador dinner. And she told me she was going to Carantonia for a retreat, and I went along with her. I just met her. That's the one thing that's really wonderful about the Camino is you can make friends really fast. And I ended up going with her to Carantonia, and then in two days later, walked to Lucia, which was about 20 or 22 kilometers away. And that began my yearly journeys to the Costa de Morte, to Lucia and Finisterre. Thanks again to both of you for bringing your experiences here. As we did in a series of episodes that I devoted to the Camino Frances, we are just going to go stage by stage and we're going to talk through whatever sticks out in our memories from walking on these routes. We can't actually be walking there right now, so this is this is the best we can do, but it's pretty good. The first stage, and I'll pause and note that not everyone follows the stages. Not everyone should follow the stages, but we're just going to use them for organization to give it a little structure. And the most common first stage, leaving Santiago de Compostela, is to Negrera. It's about 20, 20 and a half kilometers. So it's a relatively easy walk. And that's what the majority of people do. It's a good-sized town, lots of albergues. Let's start here. What was going through your mind? What are you thinking about as you leave Santiago? For me, it was just the fact that I could still keep walking. Once I've reached Santiago, I know a lot of people feel this way. It's sort of like, now what? Now what do I do? I, I got here and now what? So I was really happy that I could continue my walking a few more days. It's just a nice ending to the Camino to be able to kind of reflect on what you've done for the past month or so. And I just love being able to kind of wind down. There weren't as many pilgrims. And it was just a really great way to end my whole first Camino experience. Terry, I'm often in a different mental state when I'm leaving Santiago. I talk to my students about this a lot because it's this weird juxtaposition where you're going from the mindset of finishing, mm -hmm. of arrival in Santiago, to then immediately after departure and continuing onward. And it's a weird mental shift because everyone that I walk with, they have very different outlooks on what arrival means to them. You know, is Santiago arrival? Is Finisterre arrival? Like, what does it mean to complete this journey? And we often get caught in between those two modes. Yeah, I understand exactly what you mean. Because some people say, once I got to Santiago, I didn't want to walk another step. And 
I, once I get to Santiago, I feel like I can't stop walking. I just, you know, send me <laughs> an, off in another direction. I'll keep going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll hear a lot more from Terry early on, and we're going to get a lot more from Irene later. What stands out to you, Terry, in that opening stage, walking out of Santiago towards Negrera? Looking back at Santiago, that's something you have to do when you're walking from Santiago to Negrera. You turn around and you look back and you get such a gorgeous view of the cathedral from that viewpoint. Then it slowly fades in the distance and then you're off on your new adventure. It's one of the reasons I love getting an early start because when you can be there just at sunrise and you're looking back, yeah, that's an exceptional view. And then onward from there, it's peaceful. It's pretty mellow walking for a good chunk of the morning. Does anything stand out to you? Oh yeah, nice forest. Yeah. It's just nice and foresty. And I think every time I've done it, it's been a bit misty, a little bit cool and wet. Also, I like looking at the arrows that are pointing back towards Santiago. I haven't done the walk back to Santiago. So I just kind of imagine what it's like following the arrows going back. Yeah. And you do sometimes run into those people coming back towards you who are finishing their pilgrimage. Yeah. I have often had rain on that day. There was one year we found ourselves walking straight into a forest fire, oh. <laughs> which was small scale, but right <laughs> in front of us. And we kept thinking like, oh my God, are they going to stop us? Are they going to turn us around? Are they going to interrupt the pilgrimage? Nope. It was a relatively small fire, but we were close <laughs> enough that you could kind of feel the heat emanating from a distance. Wow. And forest fires are hot. I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> we're, we're getting to know them very well in the Northwest up here. So that's what stood out to me in the early walking. But for me, so much of that walk is ultimately about Ponte Macera. What are your thoughts on Ponte Macera? Yeah, is that the place where they were sort of like waterfalls? Yeah, the old medieval bridge and the perfect little yes, medieval yes, yes. estates flanking it on both sides. Yes. It might be the prettiest town. Yeah, thank you for telling me the name of that place because I could never remember the name of it. And I don't know if you can even stay there, but I would love to stay there sometime. I don't know if there's any lodging there. As of now, I have not discovered any. Even the bar, the one bar is often closed much of the time. <laughs> but there's a rope swing just back a bit along the river. And it's just the perfect place to while away an afternoon. Yeah, I have lots and lots of pictures from that bridge. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very undeveloped area. You know, it's one of the things that I think about a lot when talking about or anticipating the last stage into Santiago de Compostela, that there's not a ton of development, right? Because most of that just gets sucked into the city. And so you end up with yes. very rural, very peaceful terrain. And it's a day well-designed for pensive reflection because there aren't a lot of interruptions and you got a lot to process from what you just left in Santiago. Yeah. Do you stay in Negrera typically? Yes. I've walked that walk three times and I've stayed in Negrera each time. The first year I got a private room somewhere because I just sort of like, okay, I deserve private rooms now after walking across the country. <laughs> the second time I stayed at a really nice albergue it seemed to be fairly new and there was hardly anybody there. And I ended up having a whole room to myself, which was wonderful. And then the last time I, again, stayed in a private room. Did you make reservations? One year, yeah, this past year I did make a reservation. 
but not the years before that. It does draw a number of pilgrims there and they're coming in at all different times because, you know, with a 20 kilometer walk from Santiago, there are people leaving at the crack of dawn and there are people leaving in the afternoon and working their way over and just enjoying as much of Santiago as possible. But it probably draws, I don't know, 75% of the pilgrims leaving on that first stage. I would say so, because there's really not a good stopping point before that. And then by the time you get there, you don't want to go. I don't know how many kilometers it is to the next place, maybe seven or eight to the next place where there's an albergue. Yeah, that sounds about right. Because after Negrera, you've got, yeah, Apeña. It's about eight kilometers away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, like I've stayed in Negrera. It's nice. You got the big Gadi supermarket. You got a good fruit stand. You've got a number of good albergues to stay in. So it's very comfortable. A lot of restaurants. Yeah. I find that I... I want to go further that first day after. For me, I tend to push on to Vila Serio, and I make it a long first day, about 34 kilometers. It makes the next two days after that easier. Mm-hmm. But Negrera has a lot of virtues. So that's the first stage. The second stage is longer, and there's not considerably more stuff along the way. It's one of the interesting things about this walk to Finisterre is that there's not a ton of architectural masterpieces. There's not a lot of towns, really. We're talking about small villages most of the way. And there are some long distances. So the most common stage from Negrera is to Olveroa. And for that, you're looking at 34 kilometers. It's a very long day. It's why I think there are a number of people these days who are opting instead to make it four stages to the coast and to break it up a little bit more. What did you do? The first time I did it in three days and I did go to Olveroa. And then the second year, I went to Santa Marina. I did four days, and I went to Santa Marina. And then last year, I went to Lago. Okay. There's really only one place there. There's an albergue there that's super. It's very new. It's beautiful. They have sheets and blankets and everything. And it was a really nice place to stop. That was Albergue Monte Auto. Yeah, I think I recall it. They have a bar as well, correct? Yes, they have a bar and a restaurant. And yeah, very nice, chill place to hang out. Great people running it. I remember being stunned when I first came across it. Like, what is this big, shiny new thing (laughs) doing here in this old town? It definitely stands out. So we'll talk through this stage and then we'll have Irene much more in the mix. Are we talking you into to flying over to Santiago when the pandemic's over and, and walking <laughs> to Negrera? Well, not for that 30 kilometer stage. I, I, when I, look, <laughs> I just have enough information. You know, when I saw that, I thought, oh, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go for this? That might be a Camino I'd want to walk with other people. Mm-hmm. Mostly I've done quite a bit of solo, but that would be fun. Yeah. Usually probably pick up people along the way. And it is a good point. There are a lot of people who want to walk shorter distances, need to walk shorter distances, whatever the different influences are. And in the past, it has been harder to break this up into shorter stages. You still don't have a ton of options between Santiago and Negrera. You're more limited there. But once you get past Negrera, as Terry was just alluding to, you got a lot of options now, and it becomes a lot more manageable to break this up into shorter segments. Terry, what stands out to you of the initial walk leaving Negrera? Well, on my first Camino, what stands out to me is I started to get one of the worst colds I had had in years. <laughs> so that wasn't a whole lot of fun, but I was determined and I just carried on. And I did end up only staying in private rooms because I didn't want to 
expose anybody else to my hacking cough and probably snoring through the night with that cold. Having my own bathroom with a shower that I could get in and steam up and clear my sinuses was wonderful. <laughs> so I stayed again in a private room. <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me how often it seems like the wheels are falling off at the end of a long pilgrimage. Like you think you should be at peak physical condition. And in a lot of ways you are. And yet it never fails that sometime in these last few days, something goes wrong. Whether it's you finally get sick after being exposed to people constantly for the whole trip, or you get injured for the first time, something really starts hurting, or you get bed bugs from <laughs> being in Galicia's overcrowded albergues. But like every year for me, like at least with a group, there's something that goes wrong. Mm -hmm. But there are things that go right as well. And I do enjoy now that you've got a couple of options if you want to stop for a morning coffee on the way out of Negrera. There's the bar in Zas, there's a Pena. So you've got a couple options now. It used to be a very lonely walk and a very thirsty walk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they have definitely responded to the growing numbers of pilgrims. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that I stay in Vila Serio. I like it a lot. Mm -hmm small town. You now have a few albergues there. You've got a couple bars. It's funny because like I stayed in Albergue Casa Vella there last time. And it's this lovely, lovely, sprawling old Galician mansion. Big, big yard. I remember walking by it. It looks wonderful. <laughs> it's just lovely. I would gladly stay there again. And at the same time, as we stayed there and were comfortable as could be, I looked with some remorse down the road at the bedraggled old former schoolhouse that is the municipal albergue mm -hmm. where we have stayed in the past. And they just have a stack of thin blue sleeping pads and one or two old shower rooms that don't even have window curtains or didn't at the time. So you're just putting on a show for the backyard. And I, I, I kind of miss that. I kind of missed that albergue experience at the same time that I was savoring the <laughs> comforts of the new. That sounds like I might have to try that next time. I mean the luxury place, not the municipal. <laughs> <laughs> it's an important clarification there. Yeah, it's lovely. And the hosts are very kind. It's always tricky when bringing up albergues. It's one of the reasons I tend not to discuss individual albergues in the book because I'm sure that there are others out there that I haven't stayed at that are similarly comfortable and kind and warm. So carry us forward. What stands out to you after Vila Seria? You know, I just don't remember the names of places that well along this part <laughs> of the Camino. <laughs> I mean, I know there's, you know, you're walking through eucalyptus and pastoreos and yeah. everything that's Galicia. It's very pleasant. Yeah. It's one of those things where I often feel dismissive you know, trying to characterize it because like you, there's not a lot of stuff that stands out as big and notable in my memory, but there's the feeling mm -hmm. that it evokes as you're walking through it, as though you are comfortable and happy and perfectly content carrying on for a few more kilometers, though you wouldn't mind if there was a coffee that happened to show up somewhere along the way. Yeah. <laughs> the towns, they just kind of are a blur to me along there. They don't have a lot of character. Yeah, you do have experience though. Santa Marina, you said you've stayed at. Lago, you've stayed at. So you know some of the towns through your uh, overnight experiences. Yeah, there's very little to Santa Marina either. <laughs> I think there's maybe two albergues there. And one of them, I believe, was right on a highway. 
It does have the virtue of having a bakery next door. So that's one thing that I can highlight about the Highway Albergue. Oh, really? Easy oh. to miss. So <laughs> that's what I can recommend there. Yeah. But yeah, Lago, it's, it's a little bit more of a village. Yeah, I didn't go really into Lago. I actually started to get another cold <laughs> this past year when I was on that stretch. Oh my goodness. So I, I napped. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Which I rarely do because then I'm afraid that I won't be able to sleep at night very well if I nap during the afternoon. But when you're run down or have a cold or something, yeah, nap is just the most heavenly thing to do. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's important. Self-care is one of the things we learn on pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. The last approach is pretty flat. You head on through Ponte Olvera, you cross the river and follow the minor highway on to Olveroa, which... My goodness, I mentioned this in the book at one point. I don't know that there's any town that has transformed more on the Camino. I mean, I suppose you could make the argument Fonse Badon. That's changed a lot. <laughs> but Overoa, my goodness, when, when we first walked through there, it was in terrible shape. It was filthy. The majority of the buildings were oh, really? in deep decay. There was one bar served drinks only. There was no other food. Mm -hmm. The albergue, we ended up having to flee the albergue because like all of our bags had gotten infested with ants. Like <laughs> we had a lot of things go wrong in Olveroa, but it's different now. What are your impressions on Olveroa? Okay, I hope I'm remembering the right place, <laughs> but I'm thinking manicured. Yes, <laughs> yeah, flower boxes. Yeah, flower boxes and very manicured and quaint looking. Quaint, but newly done quaint. <laughs> so many new albergues, new structures, just like completely overhauled by pilgrimage money. Mm -hmm. So did you stay there once then, or have you generally not stayed in Olveroa? Yeah, I only stayed there once. And again, that was the day of the really bad coughing and <laughs> congestion. <laughs> so most of my memories walking past. <laughs> it really is one of those places now that is total pilgrim town. Maybe that's a disservice to the locals who live and work there and have all kinds of other responsibilities. But if you're there in the summer and you walk around, my goodness, 95% of the town population must be pilgrims. <laughs> and it feels like an overwhelming majority of the town businesses are oriented towards that. Mm -hmm. So from a pilgrim perspective, it's very comfortable. It's a fun, lively place before what is, for many, their very last night of walking. Because a lot of people don't go to mm -hmm. Mushia. They go to Finisterre and they call it a trip. So for a lot of people, it's that last night before walking. Right. Yeah, the last night before a nice 34-kilometer day. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was a long, long walk. <laughs> it is a long walk. But you do get your first glimpses of the sea, and that really keeps you going. Yeah. You kind of see it, and then you don't see it for a while, but you know it's you're almost there. Yeah. And we're almost to Irene, and Irene is about to take over this conversation before too long. As you said, Terry, we're going from Olveroa onward. Do you have experience going in both directions from Olveroa? Yes. Let's start here. You're back on the Camino. You're in Olveroa. And you're making the decision. Are you going to turn left towards Finisterre or are you going to go right towards Mushia? What's your choice? Well, the first year I went towards Finisterre, I didn't even know about Mushia before I started the Camino. And so Finisterre, that was my end point. 
from the beginning, end of the earth. That was my end point. The next year I decided I needed to go the other direction and I went to Mushia and I stayed at the fabulous albergue in Dumbria. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's gorgeous. It's amazing. <laughs> Apparently there's a sports center next door. I didn't take advantage of it, but pilgrims are able to use the sports center next door. I think there's a swimming pool and all sorts of things. The only thing that I didn't care for in that albergue was the building was gorgeous. It was very well planned out. The bathrooms, the laundry facilities were all great, but they got those same cheap bunk beds, <laughs> metal bunk beds that are like kid size that you find, you know, so many albergues. So that was disappointing after having stayed in some places that have the nice sturdy wooden bunks where you can sit up all the way if you're in the bottom bunk without hitting your head. So that was the only downfall of that place. Otherwise, it was amazing. <laughs> For people listening who aren't familiar with the Dumria albergue, you have to look it up. It was a gift from a rich local who funded this work of art that doubles as accommodation. And it is a spectacular structure, probably a little poorly conceived as an albergue. Like I don't, <laughs> it is not making the best use of space ever. <laughs> oh yeah. It looked like there was a ballroom in there. <laughs> there was a huge space. It's, yeah. We said, is there going to be a band and dancing in here? <laughs> it is underused because, you know, most people stay in, in Overoa, or these days, Logoso, as I did last time, and it's a really nice place to stay a handful of kilometers after Overoa. But as a consequence, the stage from there to Dumria is relatively short. Of course, more people go towards Finisterre anyway, but it's, uh, it's a marvelous structure. Yeah, that for, for me, that's the big thing I have to talk about with Dumria, which, you know, has a small grocery and a couple bars and, mm -hmm. you know, you could do worse in terms of places to spend the night, but it's really the only town of any consequence if you turn right towards Mushia. Yeah, I think that there were six pilgrims staying there the night I was there. And I don't know how many beds they have. There was one year where I had a group, right? So there's 10 of us. And we decided we were just going to do a ridiculous stage because we saw this albergue in Dumria. And so we were going to go for it. So we walked from Negrera to Dumria. So, <laughs> oh, wow. That's a massive <laughs> stage. And of course, it's, it's a municipal. There are no reservations. So I'm gambling everything on the fact that the 10 of us are going to have beds after walking a massive stage. And sure enough, like we were the only people there. <laughs> When we got there, yeah, it's unfortunate. More people need to go and enjoy that albergue. Yeah, I also remember they don't have an on-site hospitalero. Somebody comes in from the village. I, apparently, when she first came by to collect our money, I was out for dinner. And so, well, I just went to bed. <laughs> I thought, you know, I'll leave my money tomorrow if I have to. And so about 1030, 10 o'clock, somebody comes in, wakes me up. Six euros, please. <laughs> On her blog, Irene writes the following about Mushia. I can hear and see the ocean from my window overlooking the sea, an unforgettable view and reminder of the power and natural rhythms of our ocean. It's endless, and while we would like to believe it's predictable, its power is legend beyond human hands. Speaking of human hands, the beauty and integrity of both natural wonders and human intention 
are inspiration for writers, poets, photographers, artists, and philosophers in this breathtaking wonder of Mushia. And aren't we all the living and creative energy of at least one of the above? To sit on a rock and listen to the sea is to be transformed. I'm a believer in nature as healer and savior in the philosophical sense. The Camino provides the time to discover, to be part of, instead of a part. Now on to the practicum of Camino Philosophy 201. Take a hike and explore Mushia. Alone or with a companion, you will fall in love again and again with our extraordinary planet. We have so much to protect. My rock placed today at the sculpture, the wound, is my prayer for peace and equality for humanity. Too much to ask? I think not. It's hope and what we can work for every day. Find more at walkingthroughtheagents.com. We're going to keep going in this direction because we've made it to Dumria and it doesn't make sense to backtrack. So we'll talk a little bit more here. Then we're going to go back to the other direction. And the reality is like, no matter where you go from Overoa, it's about the same distance. It's like 31, 32 kilometers, whether you're going to Mushia or to Finisterre. There's just more places where you could potentially break up the walk as you head towards Finisterre. Is that the place where you can choose which way you're going? Yeah, exactly. Leaving Overoa, you walk a handful of kilometers to Logoso. There's a bar there. There is an albergue, which is very comfortable. And then after that, there's another small place very soon after called Hospital, where they make really good tortilla bocadillos. <laughs> Got to catch them at the right time. Man, do they get slammed in the morning with the early crowd from Olveroa. And then right after Hospital, you come to a roundabout in the highway. And that's where it is pretty clearly marked that you go left for Finisterre or right for Mushia. It's hard to mess it up, but you know, you could if you're just like, sometimes you get in that mode where you're just blindly following whichever pilgrims are out in front of you and you don't pay much attention to anything else and uh, surprise could happen if you aren't tracking that. But if you go right there, you're going towards Mushia and you go through Dumria. And Terry, what do you remember from that walk? Oh, from Dumria to Mushia? Mm -hmm. Well, I do remember almost being attacked by a dog. <laughs> At one point, I was walking through not really a village, just, you know, a small, an area with several homes. And it was a Saturday morning and nobody was out. And I walked by this one house. I was on the left side of the road and it was across the street. And there was a German shepherd just barking like crazy at me. And, you know, usually on the Camino, they bark and then eh, they stop. But I think there's so few pilgrims along there that this dog kept barking. And I didn't really worry so much about it because he was behind a fence. Actually, it was a solid wall fence. And I kept walking and then I noticed that he was suddenly in the next yard over following me and that he had jumped a fence. And so then I started to feel a little worried. You know, I thought this dog can jump those fences. <laughs> but I kept going and then I get to, there's one final property and that property didn't have a fence to the road. It just had a chain across it. And out comes the dog across the road at me. 
And a little background, when I was three years old, I was bit in the face by a dog. And so I grew up pretty terrified of dogs. And it's only been in my adulthood that I have gotten over that. So I was pretty proud of myself that I didn't panic or freak out. I just held up my walking sticks and shouted no. And he kind of paused and he kept coming. And then I just did it again a little more forcefully. And he finally turned around and left. But I was walking alone, as I often do, and I had left a bunch of people at the cafe where I'd have breakfast because they were just kind of lingering and I was kind of chomping at the bit to get going. And I I thought, this is a time I should have waited. (laughs) I should have waited to walk with some other people, but I live to tell the tale. It's funny. Shirley MacLaine (laughs) and some of the other early pilgrim writers in the resurgence of the Camino terrified an entire generation of pilgrims about dogs, especially in Fonse Badon. Like the stories of the dogs waiting to attack pilgrims are legion, but it does seem to be a rarity. I have been attacked by a German shepherd while walking, but it was not on an official route. It was a route where definitely I was the first pilgrim that dog had ever seen. Right. And it wanted me to be the last pilgrim it had ever seen. Uh, we, <laughs> we have taken a dark turn here. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that stood out to me walking to Mushia is I just kept waiting to see the coast. It takes a while. Right. It's not like walking to Finisterre. Yeah. It's really only in, in the closing stretch where you finally come along parallel to mm-hmm. a beach and you're like, oh my God, we're actually here. I, I think I was struck more by visions of windmills actually, or turbines than I was by the coast until the, the very, very end. Yeah. And then there's a boardwalk. I yes. think you walk along a boardwalk when you're getting closer to town. Yeah. And then you feel like, oh, I must be close to the sea. There's a boardwalk. Yeah. And you could argue about what's more satisfying, right? Like when you're walking to Finisterre, we'll we'll get there, but you're along the beach for a while before you actually get to your destination. There maybe there's something satisfying about the fact that you're you're not officially at the beach until you're basically in Mushia until the walk's over. Like you really gotta earn it. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the boardwalk because when I walked the first time to Mushia, we walked from this small town, which I can't even really tell you exactly where it is, Carantonia, but when we entered Mushia, it was on the boardwalk. But when I walked this last time from Finisterre and then Lires, we walked on the other side, coming in a little bit more industrial section. And it was not the boardwalk. It was on the other side of Mushia. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yes. It's a totally different walk from Finisterre. Yeah, absolutely. Mushia is a town, every time I'm there, I get turned around and confused. I have to always be looking at the maps on my phone to make sure I'm going in the right direction. I'm not exactly sure why that is, (laughs) but I find it a bit of a confusing town. It's funny because you do have a couple of landmarks, right? You've got the hill, Mm -hmm. you can see out to the coast, but yeah, I hear what you're saying there. But that's part of why we have an expert here on Mushia. So... um, Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Irene, ever. (laughs) I want you to talk more about your relationship with this town because you've spent a lot of time there. So what drew you into Mushia? The first time, it was not a total intention. It was that we were leaving Carantonia. We had directions on how to get to Mushia on a little piece of paper without really a map. Even as we were walking, it's really quite beautiful. There's farmland and sometimes on the road and we got a little disoriented and luckily we found these 
two pilgrims with their GPS, you know, on their phone, and they set us straight, you know, which way to go. And when we finally did arrive, and we did go through like some forested area, and it was quite beautiful. And when we finally arrived in Mushia, it was supposed to be like 20 kilometers. We probably went 22 or 24 because we didn't exactly walk whichever way the map shows. And it wasn't completely well signed in that direction that we went, but we did find what we needed to get there. We had a reservation for Bella Mushia, which is, it's a hostel. It's run by these two absolutely amazing, I don't know if you would call them hospitaleros or what. Sure. But Celia and Angel. And I've been there now five times and they know me by name. But that was the very first time and we stayed in the hostel part. That night, we walked around, we had dinner, we were celebrating my friend's 70th birthday, which I had already celebrated that year. We were walking around, then we came back, we finally took our showers, we went, it was just really comfortable in the hostel, it was really nice, fairly new, and we went to sleep, and then about 10 o'clock, we started hearing firecrackers, and it started getting really noisy. That was the festival. And if you go to walk in Musia in September and Finisterre, you will find the festivals. We were up all night pretty much. We should have just gone out to join them, but we didn't really know what was going on. And then the next day, we decided we were not going to stay because it was too noisy. That was when we went to Finisterre, and they also had a festival. And it was even more remarkable. So always good to check the calendar if you want to make sure you're going to have accommodations. But I love Lucia. It is really beautiful. There's so much to see and to walk around and just sit and contemplate and walk up to the top of the world. You're already at the end of the world, and now you can walk to the top of the world on this huge rock there are tourists that come, so you go early or go late. And it's just the most peaceful and spiritual place I've been on the coast. And it is the Costa de Morte, so it's very jagged, big rocks, and they're just spectacular. I've been five times, and each time I discover some new place, like the rock that's way up at the top of the hill. I didn't know that until somebody told me about it, even though I'd probably walked by it. There's a lot of things I might walk by because I'm kind of just in this zone for walking. And you can walk all over in Lucia. It's not just walking to the albergue. There's a lot of back roads and back streets. You're walking around and you can see the sunrise from one side and the sunset from the other. So I just have this affinity, this real feeling for Lucia. And I have not missed going back. I went twice on the Camino in 2018, and I went three times to Musia. So they're really happy to see me. <laughs> That's awesome. Terry, what were your impressions? Well, my first year in Musia, I didn't walk there. I had actually, after I went to Finisterre, I went back to Santiago, and it was actually my birthday, and I celebrated my birthday in Santiago. And then I had a friend from home actually more of an acquaintance from a, a Spanish conversation group. And he has owned a place in a little tiny town called Camella for probably 40 years. And so he said, when you get there, write to me and let me know when you're there and I'll tell you what you should do. And so I wrote to him when I was in Santiago and asked him what to do. And he says, 
I'll tell you what, get yourself to Mushia and we'll come pick you up and you can come spend the night with us at our place. And so I did that and it was really a lovely little relaxing town. And then I said, okay, when you take me back to Mushia, don't take me all the way back. I want to walk into Mushia. And so I did walk maybe five to six kilometers that day into Mushia. And it was really lovely and restful. And then my next year when I went there, I found out the day before when I was in Dumbria that somebody walking the other way said, there's going to be a festival, they're building <laughs> stuff, it's going to be. And so I thought, oh no, you know, I better see if I can get a reservation somewhere. There was no reservations to be had. And that was one of the reasons I was sort of in a hurry to get to Mushia that day so that I could kind of walk around and maybe find a place because I knew I could get into the municipal albergue, but I maybe wanted to stay closer in town. I couldn't find anything. And I found out that the municipal albergue is a really a wonderful location for seeing the sunset. They've got a rooftop that you can go up and you can just see everything from up there. So the building itself was a little cold and, and industrial, but the rooftop made up for it. And a bunch of us sat up there and had some wine and some snacks and it was a really nice ending to that day. But the festival itself was amazing. It was pirates and bagpipes is all I can tell you. <laughs> it's just everybody around was either dressed as a pirate and they're, or they're playing bagpipes or they're dancing to bagpipes. There was just booths all over the place, just fresh seafood and craft items. It was so lively, so much different than the other times when I've been in Mushia. And it's more of a place of solitude. It was really fun. What month was that? That was August. Yeah, so September is the Nosa Senora de Barca Festival. There's a lot of festivals. Yes. You have to pay attention to those calendars. I confess that I often feel like a bad person because more often than not, when I learn that there's going to be a fiesta, my response is not awesome. My response is like, oh, I'm not sleeping tonight. And... <laughs> Things are probably going to be yeah. closed and I'm hungry. So I should approach that with more enthusiasm. People often ask, why Mushia? Everyone quickly grasps the meaning and importance of Finistere. Easy to understand. The end of the world. That has a nice definitive tone to it. People miss that Mushia is very much a pilgrimage destination in its own right. It's deeply connected to the story of Santiago. Mm -hmm. Poor James was having a hard time of it in Iberia, and Mary came out on a boat to make him feel better, and she landed at Mushia. And the rocks on that small peninsula are said to be parts of that boat. So it is a sacred shrine, and it was even before it was adapted by Christians in the region. So it has historical significance. And yeah, that's exactly what Irene's talking about is being celebrated there in September with a Romeria, a local pilgrimage mm -hmm. to the shrine and the festival that accompanies it. Irene, I want to invite you, like you say, you, you find something new, something different, something exciting every time you go back. You have a perspective here that's really rich. What are one or two less obvious things that you really enjoy in Mushia that you would recommend to other pilgrims that they hunt them down when they're there? Well, I would recommend walking through the back streets up to the hill and then back down because it's different than it's like a lot of people walk just on the street to get to Mushia. It's another entrance. But if you walk where I was staying, our albergue, the hostel, is right on the trail that goes, it is the Camino. 
and it goes right down. I really enjoyed just sitting. There's a big monument there, and it's in honor of an oil spill from many years ago. And it's also by the zero marker, either with people that I've met or sometimes I just sit and it's really meditative. But I love talking to all the people, so I usually strike up a conversation, which is something I really like. The thing that I just remember most about Mushia is just how peaceful it is, but also how friendly. There's a lot of pilgrims, and it's just spectacular because it is the coast, because it's the coast of the Morte, because it has such a history. And it's the same coast that I'm walking on when I'm in Portugal all the way up. And of course, for people who care about these things, it is also possible to get a certificate there. So people walk to Santiago, can get the Compostela, they can get their Muxia certificate. And then if they continue on to Finisterre, they can pick up one of those as well. Yes. And complete the trifecta. So I did get the Muxiana, <laughs> but not the Finisterre. All right. So we're going to backtrack now. So we split after Hospital, after Ovaroa, and went towards Muxia. Terry, if we had gone the other direction towards Say, what would we be enjoying? Well, last year I did stay in Say after Lago, and I really enjoyed it there. I mean, it's it's on the water, so that's always nice to be on the water. And it was also a beautiful sunny day when I was there. And, you know, it's a bigger town. And it was just a lovely, it was relaxing. I believe there's a walkway around, there's sort of an inlet there and there's a walkway that you can walk around there. And that was really nice and lots of birds and, and other wildlife around the water. It was just a nice relaxing place to be, I found. It does make a really nice place to break up the walk mm -hmm. because it does have so many comforts, so many amenities. Mm -hmm. We have powered through a lot of churros there. We <laughs> cleared out a bar once, so. But I will add that walk from Hospital to say might be my favorite stretch of this part of, of this particular pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. You are completely cut off from traffic. You're off-road. You pass a couple of little shrines out in the middle of nowhere. And then you get that experience, you know, you're up in the hills and all of a sudden you see the ocean appear for the first time before you. And it's just a spectacular moment that gets the blood pumping as you begin that descent to say. So I like that a lot. For me, that's why I think my preference is to go in this direction, because I think that that experience I is better than the experience. Yeah. Having done it both ways, I agree that I do like that way better than towards Muxia. Except for missing the albergue in Dumbria. That <laughs> if you were really committed, you could walk to Dumbria and then backtrack to the Finisterre route. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Just a handful of extra kilometers, nothing too bad. Irene, what stood out to you about the walk from, say, Corcubion on to Finisterre? Well, after you get through with, say, you walk through Corcubion in this kind of a village road street, and then you come out to a children's playground, you know, which I always love children's playgrounds all, all over Spain. And then just kind of walk through this narrow passageway and then there's an arch and you, it's not too long before you see the ocean, before you see the sea. That part to me is always so breathtaking. The word breathtaking just describes everything on that coast to me. I really liked that part of the walk. What I would really recommend is anybody who 
who has two extra days, but they can't do the whole walk, that they go either take a bus or a car or something and get to Fay and then walk to Finisterre. It's only 14 or 15 kilometers. And then if they can't stay overnight, they can take a bus back. That really is the end of the Camino, I think. And I didn't know that. And I just happened to luck out the very first year we ended up in Finisterre. Yeah, if you don't have the full time to be able to complete the walk, you can still get a really nice slice of it, especially if you've been on the Camino Frances and you've been away from water a lot of the time to go get mm -hmm. that really satisfying short walk and be along the coast and to pass some beaches. I can see that being a really good choice. Thank you for reminding me of the playground and, and all of that, because I just sometimes, until my memory is jogged, I forget about some of these things. Thank you for reminding me of that. It is always so hard for me in this stretch to not completely get singularly focused on almost a finisterre, almost a finisterre. Like, mm -hmm. I'm often just marching. Irene, your, your point is well taken. It is a really pretty walk and the trail does align with beaches at multiple points and particularly for the beach, the Praia de Langostera, the final approach to Finisterre, you got to just kick your shoes off and walk in the sand all the way along there. You know, mm -hmm. you even got a faucet to wash your feet off at the steps <laughs> at the end, but just enjoy it and take in that experience of walking along the beach. Well, there's that little cafe kind of place right at the beginning of that beach. Yeah, that's just such a great place just to stop, relax, have a snack and something to drink and look at the ocean. And then I know my first time I took off my shoes and I walked in barefoot in the sand the rest of the way in. It was fantastic. I appreciate your discipline. If I'm that close to Finisterre, like wild horses couldn't hold me back at that point. But I think there's a lot of virtue in forcing yourself to stop or enjoying the stop and just thinking about what's ahead. What stands out to you about Finisterre, the town? The first time I thought it was kind of a sleepy town until of course the big, huge festival. And it was an incredible festival actually with flotilla and processions. And it was really wild there. The day that I was there, when I was just walking into Finisterre, I stayed in a Casa Rural or someplace close to the trail so I could just walk on to Musia. Sometimes when I've been there, I feel like Finisterre is a sleepy fishing village. And other times, it's just wild. It just depends on if you're walking in the back. There's all these little alleyway streets, and it's really fun. I really think it's a great place. I like Mushia better, maybe it's quieter, but for some people, they want that huge celebration. You know, they go to the lighthouse and that's another place where it can be really quiet depending on the time you go. If you go at night or the time of year, it can be very crowded. So it depends what people want from their Camino. Terry, what about you? What do you think about Finisterre, the town? It's another town that I find a little bit confusing walking around. I mean, I think I finally got it figured out after being there four times or so. But yeah, the walk up to the lighthouse is great. Last year, though, I took an alternative route, a path that kind of goes up and over. Mm. And so you get a view from the lighthouse from above. I love that walk. It was tricky to take. I found somebody on the forum mentioned this app called Windy Maps, and it has all the trails 
like everywhere in the world, it seems. But I was able to find the trail using that app. And that was really fun. I just did it by myself. And there were actually, by the time I got to the end, there was somebody else up there to take my picture with, with a lighthouse in the background behind me. I really loved that. One year, 2018, I actually wasn't able to walk to Finisterre because I had hurt my leg. And I took a bus there and met up with some women that I had met in Santiago. And they said, hey, we're going to go on this sunset cruise. I said, said, yeah, there's a sunset cruise. It's 12 euros and it takes you out by the lighthouse. It was fabulous. Only 12 euros. And they also gave us wine and a, a snack. But it takes you way out for sunset by the lighthouse. And the weather, it was summer, so the weather was just gorgeous. And that was a really great way to see the point, to see the end of the the world from the sea. And so last year, I did a Camino Portuguese with a friend, and she ended up being injured. And so I took her on that one. And she just said, this made my whole trip. Thank you so much for taking me on this boat cruise. It's so interesting that you remind me because I also went on the boat cruise and it wasn't during that walk. I had already been in June and July to Finisterre with my friend after we had walked on the Francais, so that same year, and we bought our tickets for the cruise. And when we got on the cruise, it was really fun. You know, we started going out. They gave us wine and just how you describe it. And Pretty soon, it's a little foggy, we're looking and we are back where we started and they're giving us our money back because they could not take us out all the way on the um, sunset cruise. So that was our sunset. Fog seems to follow me around in Finisterre. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a bummer. But it's still beautiful. It's still beautiful. So I get what both of you were saying about the strange feel of the town. And it's funny how even when you go back to the same place three or four times, it's easy to fall into the rut of just following the same roads that you know Mm -hmm. and not getting off of them. And I can't believe how long it took me to go walk down along the dock. And it's just like it's a different dynamic down Mm -hmm. there. It's really fun, lively, lots of great restaurants right down by the water. We Mm -hmm. used to go to the hippie beach on the other side of the peninsula. We were warned at one point by an hospitalero to not, under any condition, go in the water there because, quote, they only come to collect the bodies afterward. There would be no help Mm -hmm. if we got sucked in otherwise. And the last time we went there, everyone kicked off their shoes to play soccer and one kid promptly stepped on a syringe in the sand. (gasps) So... All kinds of things are happening out on that hippie beach. It has that name (laughs) for a reason. So um, I I have not been to the hippie beach. (laughs) It's stunning. And you will see some of the most dramatic waves that you see anywhere. Like if you are on the Langostera beach, Mm -hmm. you're looking at that and you're asking yourself, why on earth do they call this the Costa da Morte? Why do they call this the coast of death? Mm -hmm. And then you go to the hippie beach and you see the waves and you realize, oh, (laughs) this is where the death is. (laughs) So is the hippie beach on the other side? Yeah. And then you kind of walk through an area to get to it and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a very easy walk. It's not far at all. It gets you away from the bulk of the crowds, but maybe keep your shoes on. Yeah. And of course, you know, it's three kilometers out to the lighthouse and some people will do it during the day. Others will do it at sunset. I have come to really enjoy 
not just going out to the lighthouse, but walking down almost as far down to the water as I can. It's a situation where even when the lighthouse is very crowded, if you scramble down, the footing's good enough, I think. So there's a path there or you just make your own path? Yeah, I don't know if I would call it an official path. It's not rock climbing. Mm -hmm. It's not supremely hazardous. You take care, you go slow, and it's super manageable. All right, we have one last piece that we need to address. It's to connect the dots for those who are going between Muxia and Finisterre. You can walk it in either direction. There's some dogs barking in the background here. I don't know if you can hear them, but they're having a good time. What are your thoughts on this walk? Frankly, there's not a ton to it. It's about 28 kilometers. There are not a lot of facilities along the way. What stood out to either of you about this part of the walk? It just seemed like it was long and flat. Part of it, you are walking right by the water, but not on it. I mean, it took a while just to get out of Finisterre, you know, and to walk that path. I broke it up and stayed in Lires, and Eraas is a private hostel and has rooms, mm-hmm. and it also has a restaurant. And then it's right above that estuary, which is really beautiful. And I stayed that night, and then I met this guy from Belgium. I call him the philosopher scientist. And we walked the rest of the way to Murcia and spent some time together. It was really fun. And it was more fun, I think, walking you know, the next day with someone. We kind of walked through a forest and there's a logging or timber area, you know, and then walked in to Murcia in that back way. I've done it twice and both times I did stop in Liris. I've done it in both directions. The first time when I stopped in Liris, I did stay at the same albergue as Eres. There was a, a friend that I had met earlier on the Camino way back on the Meseta, just pop, just showed up there. So that was really great to have a friend there because otherwise I was on my own. But yeah, the beach along there and there's that bar on the beach that's really nice, really great views. And there's some nice beach walking and over to the left, when you walk down to the beach to the left, it's really pretty. There's some big rock formations. Yeah, it was just a really lovely place. Last year, I walked the other direction, and I stayed in a Casa Rural that was really lovely. But yeah, it's kind of nice to slow down and do that in two days at the end, instead of trying to power through and do 30 kilometers when you don't have to. Just take it easy. <laughs> yeah, you're celebrating. It's, it's the victory lap of the Camino. And people do consistently enjoy their time in Lires, and they've done a nice job of capitalizing on being the only game in town in a lot of ways. Yes, and now I want to go back again and see what I might have missed. (laughs) So here's my last question. I'm not going to ask you to pick which one's better, but there are a lot of people who end up in the position where they have time for one, Finisterre or Muxia. What is the argument for choosing Finisterre? What is the argument for choosing Muxia? Because everyone has their different preferences. Some are going to prefer one or the other. Let's start with Muxia. What's the argument, if you only have time for one, to go to Muxia? You could take that one, Irene. Because <laughs> <laughs> Terry does not believe it. <laughs> I know. I, I have a hard time saying you should, for the very first time, only go to Muxia. Because I think Finisterre, it just has this aura about it. But Muxia actually is the place in the movie The Way that 
Martin Sheen goes with his son's ashes. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really realize the spiritual significance of Mushia, not necessarily religious for me, but just the spiritual is so much more, I think, with the rock formations and the history. I would go there to Mushia if I could only go to one place, which I have done now. But knowing that going out to the lighthouse, that also holds quite a pull. So I think you should go to both. I'm not going to tell <laughs> anybody you could only to go to one. <laughs> it happens. Sometimes you got to make a tough choice. I think you make a good argument there that the centrality of the Virgin Mary to the story of Mushia adds a, a certain spiritual element to it. You can talk about the spiritual aspects of Finisterre and the, the end of the world. So it has that too. But that centrality to the story of the Catholic pilgrimage is meaningful. And the other thing I would offer about Mushia is there is something really nice about the compactness of it. You know, if you are in Finisterre, you've got the three kilometer walk out to the lighthouse and back. In Mushia, you can sort of come and go and everything is, it's a more convenient place to enjoy everything that is bound up in it. And for people who are exhausted and, you know, want it to be easy, I think it's an easier place to relax and celebrate. I'm glad you mentioned the way though, because I remember watching that the first time and thinking, did the Mushia Tourism Bureau like <laughs> give, <laughs> how'd they end up there and not at Finisterre? This is fascinating. You know, the idea of the religious significance, it's not my religion. And so I feel that I have to say spiritual in a way that is more about nature and about honoring the cycles of the ocean and the seasons. So that's more the kind of spirituality that I feel when I go there. Terry, what's the argument for Finisterre, if you only have time for one? I prefer someplace a little more lively. And so there is quite a bit more to do in Finisterre. And like I said before, I mean, I discovered this alternate way to the lighthouse, and that was fabulous. The boat cruise. I haven't gone to the hippie beach yet, so I still have that to look forward to. There's just a little bit more going on there. And so you have a variety of things that you can do while you're there. That's my plug for Finisterre and the lighthouse. I mean, that's one thing you can't beat. You could even sleep in the lighthouse. You can. It's a hostel, so... I wouldn't want to sleep in the lighthouse, though, because then you're too far from town. <laughs> Just one night, then you go back yeah. into town. But of course, you'll have the parador in Mushia before too long. So you have, you have options. Ah. It's wild. <laughs> All right, but we won't go down that road because we have done more than enough. Terry and Irene, thank you both so much for spending this time. You each bring a different perspective to this, and it was great to bring those perspectives together for this conversation. Oh, thank you. It's just like being there. In any conversation about pilgrimage, you cover some things that are really important to you, and you inevitably miss some as well. And so here are five additional thoughts that I have as I listen back on the conversation that Terry, Irene, and I had that I think are worth adding to the mix. First, one thing you can plan for on your first day out from Santiago is a good breakfast about nine kilometers in. So if that distance sounds good to you, you're all set. You'll get to Maison Alto do Vento. It's just before the small town of Ventosa. 
It's got a great patio area. It, it really does draw in the pilgrims. It's the best place to get a snack, I think, on that first day's walk. So load up there. Maybe take a sandwich for the road that you can eat in Ponte Macera since the bar is unlikely to be open and available to you there. So set something aside so you can have a nice picnic when you get to that beautiful town. Second, it's important to note that supplies are very limited between Negrera and Say. You're not going to find a good-sized supermarket or grocery store. It doesn't mean you're going to go hungry. There are, you know, bars, restaurants along the way, so you can get food. But if it's important to you to have supplies, just know that you've got the Gadis there in Negrera, and uh, it's going to be a while till you get to the Carrefour and other options in Thay. So plan accordingly. If you really get yourself into trouble, one thing I did once upon a time was an optional detour you can make to the town of Apicota. It's before Overoa after Lago, and you'll see a couple of signs indicating it because there is an hostal that also has a converted room into a, a small albergue in Apicota that's been very supportive of the pilgrimage for a while. There's a small grocery store in the town. There's a, a bakery. If you hit it at the right time, there's a market. So it's a nice spot, and if you like to have a few more comforts, it's going to add a few kilometers to your walk, but you can check it out. Third, speaking of Lago, the hilltop views just before you get to Lago are really something to look forward to. It's Monte de Aro, and it'll work up a sweat as you uh, go up that little hill. It doesn't last terribly long, but it's one of the sharper inclines along this walk. And when you get to the top, you'll look off to the right to see the Embalse de Fervenza, a large lake that just sparkles when the sun is out. And that's another great spot to plan on, just taking a break and admiring the scenery. You don't have a ton of dramatic views in the first couple days of this walk, in part because you only have a couple of notable ascents. But that's a good one, and that's one to look forward to. The other thing that I'll mention is that there are two small shrines on the walk from Hospital Antuthe. They're local pilgrimage shrines. They're not particularly impressive. I mean, they're not like giant architectural spots. But there's a certain atmosphere to them, cut off as they are from traffic. In particular, the Capela de Nosa Senora de Leves is probably the nicer of the two. It's the first that you'll come to after Hospital. Another nice spot to just sort of sit out, think about the walk that you've had to this point. The last thing that we didn't really touch on is the fact that there are pilgrims who complete this both leaving Santiago and returning to Santiago. So they make it a round-trip affair. It's still relatively few doing it. About a thousand people earned their Compostela walking from Muxia through Finisterre and then back to Santiago. You can actually do that. And if you do that, it'll take you about 200 kilometers. So it's not an inconsequential distance, really, right? Like, that's, that's going to be at least a week of walking. And you could do a lot worse if your time is limited or if your time is boundless and you are completing your pilgrimage that you have walked for weeks. To have that opportunity, the epilogue, as it's often called, to process or at least begin the process of reflection, it's immensely valuable. One thing for sure, though, please don't burn your clothes at Finisterre. The quote unquote, tradition, continues to persist in many stories of the lighthouse. But it has been officially banned for a decade now, 
as fires have been sparked that have swept across the craggy coast from thoughtless pilgrims setting fires in a dry and windy area. Just enjoy the sunset. It's good enough. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Irene Lipshin and Terry Stephenson. You can find Irene at walkingthroughtheages.com. While Terry is a steadfast contributor to the Camino Forum, known there as Tresio. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWinson.com. Thank you as always for listening.